0: Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to Alaskan author Seth Kantner. Seth was born and raised in Alaska, among the animals and the wilderness, and his writing reflects that. It draws from personal experience, often dealing with themes that involve animals, the environment, and living off the land. He says that when he was a kid, his family was entirely attached to the seasons and food from the land. Both decided what they would do every day, be it hunting, fishing, picking berries, or chopping wood. Seth continues to live this way of life. In the winter, he hunts for caribou and chops wood for the fire that heats his cabin. And in the summer, he works as a commercial fisherman. Riding, he says, is what he does after he's done working for the day. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of The Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to The Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Seth Kantner. Seth says that he's meticulous about his writing that keeping the messiness and the irreverence and the beauty all mixed together is important to expressing an authentic image of remote Alaska. One that shows the reality of living in harsh, inhospitable environments, not just the beauty of things like the Northern Lights and flawless wilderness. Having grown up on the land and remaining so close to it today, he's watched how much everything has changed as a result of human encroachment and climate change. His writing details these observations, and what it's like to have, as he says, modernity bumping up against his life. So here he is, Seth Canner. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired it up.
1: Crude Conversations. Listen more, then you talk.
0: Go to work! Did you just finish with your book tour, or are you still in the middle of it?
1: Oh, what a crazy question. Um, (laughs) I was upriver spending every day looking for caribou, and then I went, uh, I want to say, 1st of October to Portland and Seattle. And it's just kind of almost like the whole idea of being self-employed. There's no parameters. And so that Mm -hmm. trip to Portland sort of was my first... um, Uh, trip but before that I'd been um, putting stuff online and you know dealing with lots of um, um, mailing out copies to try to get uh, some media attention and and then I uh, sort of bumped into COVID and um, the fact that my books uh, were lost on a container ship for eight weeks and um, so I came home from that first trip and then just sort of set up a whole nother three-week book tour which yes to answer your question I got back from a couple of weeks ago
0: and what do you mean you bumped into COVID?
1: oh <laughs> sorry um, certain uh, yeah certain uh, bookstores were not interested in uh, live events uh, not just bookstores but other venues and um, and so there was you know some Potential for Zoom still, but it's pretty different than in the past, where you go to a reading at Port Angeles or somewhere, and um, they had canceled pretty quick in there, and and uh, I guess Eugene canceled because there were no books, and it was just sort of dismay, and it was very reminiscent of how caribou operate. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of confusion, running back to the across the thin ice to shore, and yeah. Um, so anyway, I got back from this book tour but then to you know um uh, go back to that subject then it it doesn't really end because then I'm still sending out queries and trying to set up um things for February and and um and uh trying to uh, get some media uh, east of Montana <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: and it sounds like not only are you self-employed but you're also doing all the marketing for your book
1: yeah, I'm not doing all of it. Mountaineers Books, my publisher is, is doing stuff that's um, you know, more or less invisible to me. Um okay. I think what I'm doing is probably uh more visible to them. Um but yeah, it's um uh, it's interesting. You write a book and you just want it to be done. In this case it took nine years to write this book and about mm-hmm. thirty years to photograph it and and you you're just nowhere even near done. It's just almost a new beginning cuz then if i don't um do everything i can to get it out there um it just sort of disappears and you know presumably disappears anyway <laughs> but um yeah so there's a i think the the average person has a pretty blurry concept of what it means to write a book and then means when you're finished writing it and starting to try to self promote it
0: you know something that i read a while back and it was from Stephen King. I'm I'm pretty sure he said that you have your entire life to write your first book, but only about six months to a year to write your second book. But it sounds like with this book, and I know this isn't your second book, but it took you six years.
1: Oh uh, yeah, well this took about nine years. But um yeah, I nine think, years. Yeah, same idea. I think that um well, first of all, I'm I'm super slow, and second of all, I'm not remotely willing to give up uh the rest of my life uh hunting and harvesting and wander around the country and camping and um so stephen king i think (laughs) falls into uh what you call um you know the high list or um where yeah it's very important that he keeps almost like a boat staying up on plane he has to keep his name out there and keep super popular so he can remain super popular and and then I've had people tell me, "Oh, if I fall to mid list, and this is uh, people that are up at the top list, then mm-hmm. you just disappear and you can maybe never get back." And so the John Grishams and the Stephen Kings, I think, are are staying up there at the top, and and that's important. In my case, I'm the you know bottom feeder and and more interested in you know fishing for salmon and uh, and hanging out with caribou. So um, we're very different. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I know that you went to Anchorage, Homer, Juno, for your book tour. Have you traveled or did you travel outside the state at all?
1: Yeah, I spent a whole bunch of uh, uh, or uh, 10 days or two weeks in, uh 10 days, I guess, in Montana, um, going to five or six different locations. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was great to we had a cold summer here in Cotsbu, so it was great to be in such warm weather in october and and then uh, see old friends and see uh, old country. Um, yeah, certain locations were you know pretty poorly attended um, for various reasons. I guess uh, publicity, media, newspaper radio is all sort of changing as far as this uh, book promotion stuff. and Who knows what's replacing it? I guess Instagram and Facebook and stuff, but that's all pretty blurry too. So it's been quite a, uh, ironic flip-flop for me to come from, you know, up at the old sod house, uh, hanging out with my binoculars, looking for caribou to, to down in Portland, wandering around the homeless shelters and wondering who reads anymore.
0: Were you really down at the homeless shelters?
1: I was trying to find the bus st- or the train station, and there's a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say homeless shelters or just uh, homeless people trying to make a shelter. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, something that I think about right now with marketing and how things have changed so much from what it used to be is that it's kind of exciting because so many of us are kind of back on a, on a level playing field um, rather than having to, you know, go to those specific avenues like a marketing company and having them do all of your stuff. Now we have um, social media, you know, to the point where we can do it ourselves. Do you Do you feel like that? or is it does it just seem like more work?
1: That's very interesting, Cody. Um, I think the word we, <laughs> that you used <laughs> okay is all very nice for you but i feel like um i spent a lot of energy learning to uh i'm dyslexic and i spent a lot of energy learning to read and write 50 years ago mm-hmm. and now um i'm bumping into this digital world that i can't understand and i i i like the uh idea of what you said level playing field and but i feel like i don't know how to use it and and um I post something on Facebook and then people say, "Oh, you got to uh, you know, got to do it at a certain time so the algorithm catches you or some," yeah. which is all nonsense to me. Um, and you know, my only analogy might be if is if somebody came up here from chicago and was wandering around on the ice and i was like yeah just look at the ice it's all kind of self-explanatory <laughs> 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 which is uh you know there's just so many different kinds of ice and yeah. some of it that you you look at you sure you're going to fall through you're not and so anyway long answer to that question um i like the idea of uh you know it putting it back uh so we're on level playing field but then i, I don't feel very level myself and um i have a Another joke I've been making lately where um you know I spent the first half a century of my life uh wanting to be Inupac uh, uh Eskimo uh you know native and uh mm-hmm. finally g- gave up and then and now I hear about this digital native um which apparently I can never be either cuz I'm too old and um and lost on the computer so um I've been uh gathering great humor from that
0: it kind of sounds like a little bit of, uh, you're chasing something and maybe there's a little bit of imposter syndrome, like an element of that involved.
1: Interesting. Um, uh, Desiree from Homer who interviewed me just sent me an email about imposter syndrome and I, I need to reread it, but, um, definitely, uh, yeah, you're, you're probably onto something. I, I've i never felt like I'm a real writer and, um, and certainly don't, um, um, don't know much about that world in a lot of different ways i just uh write down what i uh what i care about and observe here and um and then how that meshes with the rest of the world is Mm -hmm. is um i guess it's curious and at the same time sometimes pretty just uh uh disillusioning (laughs) i just um I feel like the land and animals and protection and, and understanding and just the value of hunting and open country is uh, something I'm trying to talk about. And then when uh, people are more interested in, you know, an, an, an app on their phone or something, then I'm like, mm-hmm. um, wow, what am I doing here? I think it's really interesting that,
0: you know, you just said that you don't feel like you're a writer. Um And I wonder if that has anything to do with being from Alaska and, you know, you're up there in Kotzebue and you're focusing on caribou and you're focusing on like living off the land. And those things to me are, are very rooted in reality. Whereas, you know, sitting on your phone and being, like you said, digitally native um, those are very they're virtual. They're, they're not reality.
1: I think you're you're uh, right on it uh, there. I, I've noticed this um, my publisher asked me to start posting on Instagram, which I'd never done before and, and, and Facebook, which I had a little And um, each time I pick up my phone, I feel uh, completely cut off from my my natural, feelings for life uh and the outdoors and the cold and the wind and the and everything that feels like real r-e-a-l to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) um yeah and um so yeah i I think you 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 hit it pretty square on and um and this fall was um pretty choppy water as far as going from like i said living upriver and then heading out into this world which was not just cities and and uh trying to promote the book but also lots and lots and lots of time on the phone and computer which um, feels like nowhere to me um it feels addictive but it also feels like nowhere and and um like you could use up 20 years of your life and not remember what you'd done
0: yeah 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 i uh I keep thinking like there there's a question I want to ask but I can't like figure out what that question is and I feel like it has has to do with you know why don't you feel like you're a writer?
1: Oh, <laughs> well, you, you hit it with the uh that you know I kind of lost track talking about um, Instagram, but um yeah I'm uh completely attached to the seasons and and food from the land and and so um we read a lot at night in our old sod house with no electricity and um and no neighbors um so words from books coming into us felt normal but then writing uh you know right now i'm living in a shack that's just constantly freezing cold so i focused on the stove and Mm -hmm. and wood and wood and get wood And, and to me cold versus warm is uh like something that's real and then me uh finding time or or something to play with words um uh feels like what you do when you're done with your your work and your life and your day mhm um but to say one more thing um you know regardless of what people think i i make you know virtually no money at writing and so i always feel like there's a lack of back pressure there so in the summer you know i commercial fish for salmon and there's there's pressure to catch salmon and make money um and with writing, there's there's no uh, connection there. There's no pressure saying, you know, write and money will come to you. Um, and so that's, that's a real thing, regardless of, you know, I never want to uh, design my words for money, but I also, if there was sort of a correlation there, that would make it seem more like something.
0: <laughs> and I think that there's something really important about not making money doing something that you love because it keeps you hungry and the material or the product that you continually produce can remain genuine and authentic to you know the subjects that you're covering
1: yeah absolutely the um I've noticed uh, (laughs) a terrible correlation where you you like uh photography and uh forcing yourself to, um, you know, deal with storms and follow a snowshoe after muskox for hours and hours. And it, there's some sort of love or, or enthusiasm that's driving you. But but then if you try to sell photos uh, and need to make money at it, then boy, it just becomes a a, a completely different thing. And, um, mm-hmm. and so I'm not whining too loud about the uh, uh, lack of money from writing. I'm just sort of noticing that it is very good at putting it on the back burner when it's when it's not um, providing income.
0: Yeah you know the, the the thought that I had or the question that I was kind of struggling with myself to to convey is that I think what it might be is that there are two different eras kind of at odds with with each other at least in this conversation is that you live a life that is very much a part of the land and self-sustaining and i think that when someone like yourself and my dad is is very similar he runs a surfing hunting and fishing charter outside of seward and um He's very much like a part of the land as well. And when he encounters like digital stuff or, you know, social media, he's just like, I I don't get it. I don't understand what people are trying to do. It is, it's a totally different language.
1: Well, that's definitely me. (laughs) I'd like to, I'd like to meet your dad because I feel like um, I don't, even know a person who's worse on computers and this stuff than me um i also seem to have some magnetic ability to make computers turn to turn blue and stop working and and <laughs> you you did say you know the sound check took about a half an hour and you it was a long one and uh i didn't make any comments but i seem to have a um ability to to follow up electronics which um is uh entirely possible that it's not even a joke but yeah so i've had endless uh people say i've never seen a computer do this before <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i'd like to meet your dad because realistically i think that is a um a, a true thing in our in our society now and i also uh think it's under observed and under uh rated that um there is uh, a giant change taking place and And it's important because um, we need to care about the land. And if we're busy looking at our little screens, we don't even know the land. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's important.
0: And how long have you lived in Kotzebue?
1: Uh, Well, I can't even really say I live here now. (laughs) Um, I was born in 1965 along the Kobuk. and, And that's still home to me. It's about 150 miles east of here. And... And I spend spring, spring and fall there. Now uh, I come down here and commercial fish in the summer, um, and then winter would be my time to do more writing. And I usually spend um, part of the winter here. I've been going over to Hawaii for six or eight weeks to where my parents live to mm-hmm. to see them. And you know, I was going to mention that my dad's uh, eighty six, and he's. Uh, he spends all his time outside working the farm and with his machete and, and tools and stuff. But um, he seems to be better on computers than me. He's uh, hunched over there pressing buttons to uh, get a hold of uh, whoever and um, yeah. and listens listens to gurus from uh, India on his laptop. And so, yeah, it makes me feel like I, I need to get with this uh, melding of. Um, you know, love and relationship with the land and and accept computers into my life.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My grandpa, back when I was in college around, you know, 2008, my grandpa knows PCs really well. And I had a PC laptop at that point. And I would reach out to him when something weird was going on with my, my laptop and he would know exactly how to fix it. So... um. So I'm right there with you with, with that sentiment. But at the same time, now I, I'm I'm on the computer constantly. So so I'm a little different um, than I was back then. But at the same time, now I have a Mac. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it.
1: Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I, I mean, I find it maddening that how uh, it sucks me in and I'm so negative about it. I mean... I'm Oh, what am I? Am I gonna go uh, across ice to get wood? Oh, I grab my phone to check the whether the wind's coming up, and and I put the the phone back down, and then pick it up <laughs> a second later to tell my daughter I'm gonna go get wood, and it just goes and goes and goes from there, and I yeah. drive myself crazy. But I I didn't completely answer your question. Um, so um, as far as you said, how long have I lived in Kutztown? my family started coming down here uh when i was nine i think it was 1974 to commercial fish and my dad had fished before that i want to say in 1959 or so here but then there was an interval where they didn't commercial fish and um so we lived across at sisolik in a tent for six weeks uh most summers and and commercial fish and then would load our dogs and and stuff back in our homemade boat, and start back up the river for home, and then you know spend the rest of the year up there. And and it wasn't until um, uh, it wasn't until I was 30, and my wife at the time got a job here, that I started uh, spending more time on the coast. Actually, spending you know winters here, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty pretty neat country. Um, really, I find it really interesting to mix uh, you know part of my life uh, up where there's uh, more trees and uh, you know up the Kobuk River and then part here on the coast where it's pretty uh, pretty harsh environment and it's we're about to get a big storm here it's uh, some of these storms are pretty scary and and then um, pretty neat the concentrations of seals and herring and uh also caribou that can pour around the town here it's it's uh, it's been great learning about the coast too can you describe what you mean
0: by a scary storm
1: oh well that's pretty interesting because it's scary because we we have technology that we're trying to not have you know the the window blow out and, mm-hmm. and and, and fill your house with snow and or your truck or whatever so technology protecting running water from um from nature is uh one of the things so when i was a kid we uh we hauled water from the river in buckets and and that's what i still do when i live up river and and so if you wake up in the morning and your bucket's frozen it's not that big of a deal um and there's that. Then on the coast here, um, there's no trees, it's flat country or flat ice, and um, so if right now we've got a whole bunch of uh, powder snow because it's been super cold and no wind, which is very rare, and it's supposed to blow 60 tonight or tomorrow, and and so suddenly you can hardly see, you certainly can hardly see uh, the front of your truck if you're in your truck looking out the windshield. Um, but, if you're crossing the ice on a snowmobile with a load of wood or something um you know suddenly there's no visibility at all, and you're uh potentially you know getting your face packed with snow that's uh moving forty fifty sixty miles an hour and twenty below and so yeah, it's just all around scary in um in a lot of ways um also, I have to admit, I think my dad and myself both uh sort of design our lives so it's hard and you're, you are feeling nature as much as possible.
0: And I just heard you say snowmobile. Do you say snowmobile or, or snow machine normally?
1: Oh crap. Um, when I'm on an <laughs> interview like this, I probably, uh, beat around the bush trying to figure out what to say here. Everybody says snow go. So when I, when I was a kid, and this is very important, um, in 19, 19- 60s was when uh the first snow travelers came they were called snow travelers and um that demarcation between dogs and and uh motorized travel in the winter was was huge as far as uh, affecting uh uh, caribou and and hunting and fishing and people's relationship to the land uh, aka protein (laughs) yeah um you know food for dogs um suddenly you know there was this need for for dollar bills to pay for snowmobiles. And um, so we called them snow travelers and then snow machines. And then we went to now it's snow go. That's what, where's your snow go is uh, yeah. Um, what's uh, the term here. But um, I'm always careful on interviews. How much of your time is dedicated
0: to subsistence living, you know, uh, hunting for
1: caribou and things like that? Um, I'm pretty efficient. Um, It's hard to answer that question partly because I've mixed photography with hunting. So, um, I can be out, um, a lot, you know, like all of September. I, I'm usually, uh, looking for photographs and then, uh, generally if there's enough caribou, I'm, I'm not interested in hunting more than one for, for food until, till late September when they're, um getting ready to rut and it's important to gather you know four or five for the for the winter um so i it's hard to answer that question um also because like uh in the summer i commercial fish for salmon which means like seven weeks almost every day of of fishing and uh a lot of those days i'm having salmon for dinner but then it's also making a living so yeah um uh, now um I don't know whether you call heating my shack I'm living in subsistence but I'm spending a ton of time um gathering wood and um and uh I guess that's subsistence <laughs> <laughs> yeah living off the land. Yeah, so um um yeah, uh, yeah a lot of the time and uh, when I go over to uh Hawaii in December to uh, allegedly help my parents you know I'm I'm drying bananas and picking coffee and and all that, so I'm really focused on food uh kind of all through the year.
0: You know, this is definitely a side note, but hearing you talk about, you know, the way you live really reminds me
1: of that book Alaska's Wolfman. Have you read that? I haven't. My dad said he's he read it. Um, but I haven't. I need to. Is that Frank Glazer? The author? Yeah. Or
0: are you asking about the author or because it's Jim Reardon is oh, the author?
1: Oh, oh, Jim Reardon. Oh, sure. Okay. No, I was thinking of that other book. No, I haven't read that one either. Um, I've really enjoyed, you know, Shadows on the Koya Khan and some of uh, Jim Reardon's other writing. I'll take a. I'll take a look at that one. Yeah, it's great. It's It's really interesting to see what
0: Alaska looked like during that period. Of I think it was like 1915 uh, to 1955,
1: and Frank Glazer was the guy that the book's about. Oh, okay. So the I'm thinking of the same guy. It's just I think there's two books. One maybe written by Frank Glazer, but that's interesting. You know, I um, I can't believe how spoiled Alaskans have become. There's so much money squirted on everything and and um a lot of times i think we're just sort of a, a shadow of what we once were and um i i really enjoyed that uh shadows on the Koyakan. i was up river living by myself and i read it and he talked about snowshoeing after um seeing martin tracks and snowshoeing after martin well when i was a kid there were I almost no martin here but with the uh, climate change and suddenly there was you know 10 20 years later there was quite a lot of them and um so i went out after reading that, went out to get an armload of wood, and there's fresh Martin tracks. So I grabbed my snowshoes and took off. And um, uh, a few hours later, I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly never caught up with the Martin. What
0: other changes are you noticing that are a result of climate change?
1: The simplest uh, thing to start with is just the 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 crazy amount of growth of uh brush and dwarf birch and willows and alders and um mm-hmm. and then uh sloughing ground permafrost and and then the the lakes just dis- disappearing where the the lakes are uh the thermal karst lakes have frozen uh sides permafrost uh sides and then when that melts it did, a lake that you've spent your your life uh kayaking on portaging across hunting on is suddenly just gone it just drains and disappears and um lots of willows growing on sandbars that we uh, they're no longer sandbars they are turning into islands and um just uh, just this towering uh, vegetation that's intimidating and then um especially fall uh freeze up was something we counted on so much for the uh ice to freeze in the river and the ocean and then we could set nets under the ice and travel on the ice and Mm -hmm. and especially fall you just never know whether you're going to get rain slop for um for an extra month or more um thin ice people drowning and animals um you know falling through and all that's uh hard to know where to start it's so extreme and then i think uh i mean first of all they say northwest alaska is sort of ground zero for climate change on earth and then i think um uh the fact that you know some of us are so focused on the land and gathering from the land and what the little cranberries and caribou and other things are doing at what season and we're just more focused on it so the excessive change mixed with that focus makes uh uh climate change a uh, uh it's a huge deal everywhere. It's just we're more aware of it.
0: Do you feel like you're you're ahead in that conversation? I mean, you said that they say that Northwest Alaska is ground zero for climate change on Earth. So when you get in conversations or you have conversations with other people that maybe are not from Northwest Alaska or maybe they're not even from Alaska, do you feel like Maybe you're from the future
1: <laughs> yeah it's interesting you say that Because, um, you i mean you can uh you can end up thinking um, you're uh extra aware of things and then and then feel like, oh wait, am I just egotistical or something, but I guess I'm having more and more times lately where i I feel like um wow, I might have a a, a different viewpoint than other people one one is um that i um I grew up really isolated from people so so nature was you know my friend and and my uh my daily uh uh experience I didn't go to work let me rephrase that <laughs> none, none of my family got up and went to work or school or anywhere we just uh stayed home and lived off the land and so um I was always sort of between humans and nature and then also definitely between white and and native culture, and and then now just here uh, sort of between caribou and <laughs> and uh, modernity, I guess. And so, yeah, sometimes to answer your question, I do have um, feelings like, oh, maybe I just have a, a different vision, a different viewpoint that makes this uh, uh, valid to, to say a few things. Um, but back to climate change, it's tough because I can um, talk about uh rain and rainstorms in winter and how uh, terrifying that is here for the for the humans and the animals and the plants and stuff but uh you know you you tell somebody that in in seattle and they're like yeah we get rainstorms in winter too And <laughs> um yeah and so you have to sort of explain well it's just uh it's, it's like having a snow a blizzard in uh the sahara, sahara desert you know you just don't have snowstorms there normally it's a it's a big deal and yeah so it's a it's a slow process when my novel Ordinary Wolves came out in 2004 I think it was um I started you know being sent to the states and talking about such and and it all felt uphill this like um people would ask me hey have you ever seen uh, signs of climate change, and I'd just be like, "Where do you start?" I mean, that's yeah, that's about all we see. <laughs> that's about all we see. Um, so, yeah, I I think you know it all boils down to answers, and um, that I I have less of. Um, I I can't even believe that people are are discussing climate change anymore. It's just it's way past time to stop discussing whether it's real. Yeah.
0: You know, I wonder if. You mentioned, you know, that growing up, you were between white and native culture. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so my parents were uh, from what we called the States. My dad uh, was from Toledo and and came up when he was 17 to go to college at College Alaska near Fairbanks. Um, And my mom came later uh, because the university was uh, offering uh, lowered t- uh, tuition, lowered uh, rates for uh, college for women because they didn't have any, and, and they met there and, and ended up coming north, um, building a small sod igloo, and I was born there, and and so they were part of this sort of back to the land movement that I feel was um, uh, focusing almost backwards if i'm allowed to say that <laughs> um but anyway very interested in in old ways of doing things uh, the native ways of living and and looking at the land and um but at the same time we weren't in a village we we're just uh you know like 25 miles down down river um from the village of ambler so mm-hmm. so i was raised with this um lots of emphasis on um uh the land but also the old native ways of doing things um but very much white <laughs> um and so somewhere along the line i could go out to the states as we call it in the lower 48 and um and probably appear to somewhat be normal um in the sense like you're walking down the street and somebody thinks you know what a dorito is or you know the difference between uh, football and baseball which i didn't um but was that a
0: normal thing? That was a normal question?
1: Oh, well, you're getting into this, <laughs> some crazy stuff. My mom got sick when I was 14 and we went to Florida for 7 months and that was my public school experience. That was 1980. Okay. And no, I didn't know the difference between these different sports or which one had a stick and which one didn't and um I didn't know who the Beatles were, which was and I didn't know what gay meant uh, there's a lot of things that um were um, beyond challenging as far as dealing with uh nasty children um in public school so yeah um that's just maybe a analogy of of um, um, my upbringing and how it fit in with uh, I don't I don't know why I use the word normal but the the so-called normal world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then um you know in the village is there's no way I could ever pass as anything but visually white, you know, and so what you are on the surface is often how you're you're treated in the world.
0: You know, I read on your website that you were schooled at home and on the land what does that mean
1: um well uh university uh sorry the uh <laughs> the state of Alaska would send two boxes in the fall, which was uh pencils and erasers and stuff, and then the other box was books, and my mom would uh uh clean off the caribou grease off the table at night after dinner and get out the books and so she taught us uh pretty much from uh first grade to twelfth grade there at night. Um, in the in the sod house with the little kerosene lamp and so that was the home part. Um, I said at night because during the day we were out um, trapping and hunting and hauling wood and drying fish and whatever. And, um, so that was the mix of those two things and it, without uh, my mom to uh, encourage um, uh, learning grammar and speaking in full sentences and and all that um, who knows uh, what I would have studied. I think my dad probably would have been pr- more interested in teaching us how to sharpen chisels and um, make furniture or kayaks or whatever all he made out of wood. But um, it was my mom that was uh, did the, uh, the, the all-American schooling. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I make a certain amount of fun of that. You know, I struggled horribly with... Um, algebra i'm uh I was amazingly good at math when it was only numbers and then when it mixed letters and numbers, I guess my dyslexia reared its head <laughs> or anyway dyslexia made uh algebra challenging and and that's sort of my example of something that I'm not sure why I ever uh was taught or studied that but but somewhere in there probably uh other stuff like history and, and geography and, and just plain old writing turned out to be important.
0: Mm-hmm. And how much did dyslexia figure into your everyday life, your schooling, things like that?
1: Oh, that's funny. You know, back then I think they just called it uh, being stupid. Um, and really? So, yeah, there was. I never heard about dyslexia until I want to say Tom Cruise had it. 30 years later, so I don't know what, what time period, but there was no talk about dyslexia when I was a kid. It was just my brother was incredibly smart, and I wasn't.
0: Were you called stupid?
1: Well, that's a complex question. Certainly, um, I was, you know, that soaks into your cells. You're just aware of that you just have an impossible time with the phonics and grammar and, uh, and and the other day i signed a book and i wrote nov for november and then i realized the n was upside down um <laughs> and um somebody just got a book with a november spell with upside down in <laughs> um and uh the same thing collector's like, edition it, oh crap um geez, i have such a i've got this story about trying to sign a book to a woman named sue and i could not remember how to spell sue um, and um, I decided it couldn't be sue because that's what lawyers do um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah and then I often anyway that's off, off the topic but yeah when I was a kid I um, had a terrible time with all that stuff and um, was slow to read and um, and then I couldn't read silently and then my family could and so that was a hurdle to So you could keep that in your head and not be cluttering up the tiny little igloo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Was there a point in your life when you felt like you know your dyslexia wasn't so different that you that you started to feel I guess quote normal unquote.
1: Oh, interesting. Uh, You know, somebody gave me a book. I think it was my friend Allison Fairbanks sent me a book called um the dyslexic advantage and that was probably two or three years ago and I think that was the first time I was able to think like oh wow maybe this is my brain doesn't work in so-called uh, useful normal manner but works um, uh, in other ways uh, you just got to keep your eyes out for the uh, the ways that it works well and mm-hmm. I'd never thought that before I'd just seen it all as dyslexic disadvantage um and after reading that book, I I bought a copy for a, a friend here with a dyslexic kid, and then just greatly wished that um, somebody would have handed it to me and my family about forty five years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Does your family see now that that it wasn't a a handicap?
1: Um. Yeah. Maybe. I'm not real sure about that. I noticed with my dad that he's got. Um, when I was probably about eight or younger, he, no, the first kayak he made was canvas covered, so maybe I was 10, he ordered this, uh, material that's called either vinyl or vinyl, I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) and so my mom corrected him for the next 50 years, but he's never been able to remember whether it's vinyl or vinyl, and, um, I can't either. And and we both, you know, are dangerous around your toothbrush because we can't remember which color was ours. And um, so there's this weird, I mean, we have the same thing where if it's a single choice, my brain can hold on to it. But as soon as there's two things to choose from, they just it just flip flops forever. I can never um, get it to stop flip flopping Um, and You know, that certainly goes back to writing, where I can just get stumped um, on a a simple word that almost everybody I know would uh, just write and and move on. You know, uh, went. (laughs) I always use the example of went. Went has to have an H. Went. (laughs) Um, (laughs) W-H-E-N-G. But then you stop and, oh, crap, it doesn't look right. Um, But, um, yeah, so little... It's just how life works, you know. A lot of things you might uh, sail over and then small things you trip over. Do you
0: write by hand or do you write on a computer?
1: Well, not to be too whiny, but back to complaining about my abilities. Um, I have a hard time with both. I never learned to type and and my handwriting is uh, so impossible that... uh, That's the if I didn't have getting the stories down that this wall between me and the paper I would have you know 50 books Um, I, I just have a terrible time getting the stories out of my head and and to the paper as soon as my hand picks up the pencil it's there's a problem. Um, and so I do, to answer your question, I do both. Um, I think it's really important to make sure you use your hand sometimes because different stuff comes out. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's different. So, um, sometimes if I'm writing, uh, fiction and I'm not having much luck with the character, I'll, I'll stop fooling around on the laptop and, and try with a pen or pencil, which I, and then also the whole idea of free writing where you you're not you try to give yourself a break and not come up with something useful but just experiment with what's flowing out of your brain into the through the pen yeah um so anyway the the the, the result is i end up with uh, a lot of uh mayhem and mixture and and have to keep sifting and and, and rewriting and, and delete and mostly deleting and and then trying to come up with a story and then it's all an incredibly slow process in my case. So um, back to the dyslexia, I have to, uh, fairly often I have to uh, just accept that I'm not like these other people that can sit down and just be zipping out the crazy words. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's just it's just not me. And I, I think, you know, all the way back to the beginning of this interview, I think that um, sort of adds to why I, I never feel like I'm a real writer.
0: Have you ever thought about using an audio recorder? I know that Rod Serling, who did The Twilight Zone back in the the 60s, he used an audio recorder.
1: Wow, I'm in- impressed. Um, uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I spent a certain amount of money on this thing called uh, Dragon Naturally Speaking. Um, and I found two things. Um, one was... Uh, I noticed when I start talking, it's like the stories evaporate out of my head. So something about that silence of me in my head um, was uh, important to me and and not necessarily to maybe uh, the person you speak of. Um, And then the other was at that point the, uh, the technology was sadly lacking and I would say, you know, the fox ran up the hill and it would say the box paid its bill. Um, And it was just, uh, uh, ooh, I almost said a bad word trying to <laughs> convey how horrible it was. <laughs> well, you can cuss if you want. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. Well, this would have been a different interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, Cody, I want to interrupt for a second. There was a uh, freight plane landing uh, in the last few seconds and i don't know whether you heard that on the uh, recording or not yeah
0: that's okay I, I actually um i like hearing that that stuff in podcasts you know it really gives a sense of the place
1: oh okay yeah that got to be you know especially cold weather is so neat when uh it's uh 30 below or something the the runways right across the lagoon ice here from the from the porch and um so it just sounds like the atmosphere is getting ripped open. I, I would like to record it.
0: You know, at, at any point in your childhood, um, and, and sorry, I didn't mean to switch subjects, but this is just, it's something that's, that's kind of been on the tip of my tongue. But at any point in your childhood, did you feel like you were being slighted because you weren't in a city? You weren't around these... Um, I guess, like Western cultural hubs?
1: Um, the the main thing that I remember is um, um, uh, Inupac travelers that came by would all stop. Anybody that passed would stop, which is not the way it is now. And they would stop in and potentially stay the night in a super small house, you know, like somebody staying the night in your bathroom with you. Um, and um, we were just so excited if they had kids, which they almost never did. Um, you know, people had kids at home, but they weren't tra- out, you know, in the country. And then so anytime kids came, it was just, you know, such a huge deal. Other kids, wow. Mm-hmm. And so that was always uh, to an absence. Um, I was best friends with... Um, my friend Alvin in the uh, village of Ambler, and, and so when his family came with their two and then three kids, um, it was incredibly exciting. And um, and then um, later, the the main feeling missing out started maybe more like 12, 14, 15, probably 15, 14, 15 years old, where um, uh, then you're just socially aware that you're just missing out on everything and you know that includes um, potentially parties and girls and cars and basically mu- music what everybody else everybody else is doing and you're not you're cutting fish to drive for the dogs yeah yeah
0: did you realize at a certain age that that stuff is actually cooler
1: Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I maybe. Yeah. That only took about 30 years. Thank you. Um yeah. I that that, that uh 7 months in Florida I was uh, you know so excited to uh you know, enter that world and have friends and and all that and you know people were so mean to me and I had 0.0 friends and um and it was just, you know, survival and so it's just so disappointing to you know, hope for that and then not be able to get it at all. Just sort of see it and other people around you. And then, um, and then when I went to college, I guess it was a tiny bit better, but to a certain extent, I was always sort of different and not fitting in and, and all that stuff. So, all that was uh, out there, wished for, but at the same time, incredibly disappointing to never be able to get across that ch- chasm.
0: You know, you've mentioned a few times now how mean kids were to you. I mean, I guess I want to ask like, why they were so mean, but kids can just be mean. I mean, looking back on it, are you able to make sense of any of it? Maybe that's the question.
1: Um. Well, I have a young adult novel sitting at Random House, sort of caught in purgatory about a you know, an almost school shooting that was, uh, based on my experience there in Florida. And I, w- I wish they would have published it because it, uh, it, uh, you know, I, I had it, uh, to them before the, the school shooting in Florida took place. And, um, yeah, I, I have spent tons of time, uh, uh, exploring in my own mind and on paper the, uh, bullying and, and, uh and how that fits in with, uh, our society and our, uh, you know, racism and caste system and mm-hmm. <laughs> class system and, and all that. So I, I spend a huge amount of time, uh, exploring that in my mind and, and people don't know that they think I'm only writing about caribou <laughs> uh, <laughs> or, or ice or whatever, uh, or climate change. Um, but, um, yeah, now I lost track of your question, but, um, yeah, I, um, i'm uh you know just over five feet tall and so i'm always an absolute target for um for male members of society to pick on um and and you know uh, female too but the the you know the boys and then men in my life have uh have always been uh easy to pick me out for for a target and then um the other part of my life was in the villages i was you know often the only white boy and so then once again a pretty obvious target
0: and why did you decide to write that that book the children's book about the almost school shooting as a children's book rather than say a novel
1: um well in this uh Field that I don't know much about writing. Um, I guess it would fall kind of in between as a as a young adult novel and and children's book falls into two more categories of uh, chapter book or or more illustrated book. But okay. as a young adult novel, it's sort of uh, uh, halfway or two th- probably two thirds the way up towards uh, you know uh, or three quarters the way up towards novel. Um, So it's kind of uh, just a novel, and hopefully it falls also into the crossover, whatever that means. But crossover would refer to, like, you're hoping a lot of adults would read this also. Um, But I don't always know these things until too late or care about them. I just wanted to write for kids in, you know, the high school range who were uh, suffering and thought they were, um, totally alone in the world and nobody understood or had ever experienced what they had experienced. And then also to say, like, while this is uh, real and, and, and terrible and no fun, but there's also um, a lot of years ahead where you can, um, if you survive, you can have a different life. I wonder if you, if you draw
0: from your own personal experience...
1: I have nothing else to work with. Yep, that's the only thing I draw from. <laughs> um, and then I tend to tell people that I have a, uh, you know, back to the not feeling like a real writer, the, the thing I do have that that I, I run all my writing through is, first of all, I don't want to waste anybody's time ever, and I feel very uh, guilty about um, wasting somebody else's time. I, I hardly ever visit because what if they wanted to You know do something else besides visit me and so going back to (laughs) wasting time i with my writing i i just don't want to waste anybody's time and then um i don't want anything that's not true because there's so much non-truth that there's plenty of that and so i run that through the the truth filter and then to check if something's true i have to really ask myself a lot of questions because as a human you can think something's true and still be pretty off mark and so those are a couple of my filters in this endless rewriting process and um, I guess the other thing is that I tend to care about what I'm writing about so I spend uh, uh, endless amounts of more time messing with trying to make things as uh, clear and um, absolutely perfect for describing what I want to describe. it all leads back to being incredibly slow, but at the same time, maybe the only thing I have uh, going besides, uh, you know, writing what I know and my own experiences. What you just said
0: that you don't like to waste anybody's time with with your writing reminded me of Strunk and White's book Elements of Style, where they say to omit unneeded words. I feel like that's always my go-to when I'm writing.
1: Yeah, same here. I, uh, and I, I think back on, I, I think it was Mark Twain joking about go ahead and put, um, well, I never did learn the the pieces of grammar, but go ahead and put, I want to say adjectives in and then uh, shake them out before you're done. <laughs> and so I picture this sort of like uh, him picking up the page and shaking it until all the varies and reallys and, And uh, whatever's uh, shake out, and um, and um, I uh, I went to college. I always said I was never never going to go to college, and then went to UAF because I wanted a girlfriend, and and did totally didn't want a degree or any of that. And I had to take classes, and to stay in college, you got to take classes, and um, and so I took whatever looked easy. And one of the things was creative writing, which I'd never heard of, and then. I started writing stories and and that's how that started it was an accidental um, I had never written stories before I was 18 Um, and um, I dropped out to go back to trapping but trapping was poor and so I went back to school in Missoula uh, to study writing and um, when I got there the head of the creative writing department was almost instantly mean to me. I just walked in to use a copy machine, and and so I walked back out and said, you know, I'm not taking that, and mm-hmm. uh, and and walked across the campus and took journalism. Um, and so, like uh, E.B. White and the the whole concept of uh, of writing clearly, journalist uh, the journalism program there was. Um, uh, very strict about um, being clear and being concise and uh, being and being honest which was really appealing to me and um, and uh, so I I just got incredibly lucky as far as writing goes I got incredibly lucky accidentally taking a class in Fairbanks and and being accepted by the by the teacher and then and then taking journalism Mm -hmm. not just taking journalism but the the teachers that I bumped into there were amazing and and then of course you know a terrible long process since then of fighting with words
0: but it is a a process that's bearing fruit
1: well um yeah that's interesting too everything to me is interesting because of my different viewpoint but i run into people that talk about success and what success means and boy their definition is seldom um the same as mine (laughs) And, uh, you know, success for me has usually been getting a fat caribou. And if it's skinny, you, you didn't get any success. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter how big the uh, antlers are. And, and so um, with writing, um, yeah, I have to remind myself, uh, you know, it doesn't pay the bills, but um, people write me letters and they, they uh, you know, I get people sending me stuff and and writing me letters and and saying what my words have uh <clears throat> meant to them and 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 that feels like success
0: off the top of your head maybe without giving out any names what or are there any letters that stick out to you
1: um one um i don't think it's a bad uh thing to say but um uh, a woman from Minnesota wrote to me, and and, and she's uh, uh, part uh, Native American, and um, and she wrote me this letter, and said uh, this was in two thousand and four or five when Ordinary Wolves came out, and she's um, really admired my writing and my book, and said uh, you make uh, uh, a lot of natives look like white bread. <laughs> and um, it turns out, you know, her uh one of her family members is a is a well-known writer too and um and um anyway i i laughed at that and i found it to be uh uh, a strange compliment after uh years of getting called other names (laughs) what does that mean um i think what she was saying was you know this this world that you know and describe is is uh basically very close to the land and and incredible amounts of uh I don't know native ways and viewpoints and understanding and and um, and I think she was maybe referring to a certain amount of uh, I'm extrapol- or uh, I'm I'm guessing here but uh, uh, referring to a, f- a certain amount of people that uh, talk a lot about being one thing and are sort of you know part part of the pop part part of the popular culture. And not really connected to the land, or connected to this uh, native group, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of beating around the bush there because it's so easy to say the wrong things nowadays, and uh, <laughs> um, and and not um, and not intend to, but just uh, yeah, say the wrong things. But yeah, I think I'll I'll just stop beating around the bush. I I think I think what she was saying was that you know I might be a white guy, but I'm uh, in a lot of ways more native than a lot of natives, and Um, and, and I hear that here too, I, I usually shy away from, from saying it or acknowledging that because it's, it's a touchy subject, but, um, I don't know, we're all mixing together now. I think if we can learn from each other, it's always a good thing.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and I read that you were or are an igloo builder. What,
1: (laughs) what does that mean? Oh, who knows? Um, (laughs) um you know the the, the old uh, igloo such a charged word you know when, when we used to go to the states people always thought of it as a snow igloo and and basically if you go far enough north there's not really very many building materials and so people did make their homes out of snow and then if you're up here on the northern coast maybe there's uh, there's whale bones and drift logs to make a structure and then heap moss and dirt on it for surviving the winter. And and then if you move down here where I was born and raised, um, people had access to uh, spruce and birch poles and logs. And, and it's still the same thing, igloo being um, uh, this structure that's sort of posts and poles all leaned together and then put dirt and moss over it and crawl in we had a tunnel we had a tunnel back then and and so um, here on the coast uh, I think it was the Park Service asked me to build a couple uh, for tourist items here and you know I'd certainly uh, grown up uh, doing that with my dad and and brother and family and and mom they're cutting moss and cutting poles and adding on to the, the old place there and so um yeah I built a a couple down here on the coast which I think I've since been bulldozed away and and that was that but um yeah very simple uh structure to to get out of the weather and I'll say one or two more things just because I'm now living in a plywood shack that's cold as heck uh, that um that igloo construction is great you're um you're, you're down in the ground and, and the ground never gets very cold. I mean, it's frozen, but, um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, if I go up any time of winter up to my sod house on the Kobuk and, and shovel down and open the door, I've got a, you know, homemade, uh, plywood and caribou skin door there and open it and, and go in, it's about 23 above in there. Um, and if I had a plywood house built right beside it, um, it would be whatever temperature it was outside you know 38 below in the house um Mm -hmm. and so and then the opposite in the summer if i go up there and uh and go in in june and it's 90 degrees in the middle of june and you're cooking outside inside it's going to be about 48 above um and so the the land is uh um is uh, softening the harshness of the outside temperature, and then, and then winter we just because uh, your your structure is built in the ground and covered with moss, it's uh, it just gets covered with snow too, and so that uh, is like styrofoam, and um, so it's a great way to live unless you don't like tons of mice and mold. Uh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you
0: know, I I realized. That I skipped a question earlier about your book tour that I wanted to ask you about. Um, on one of your stops, you had the opportunity to spend some time with musician Martha Scanlon.
1: What was that like? Oh, that's interesting. So um, I don't—I uh, didn't know Martha, and I um, um, had a friend send me some tapes that I've listened to the same two tapes over and over and over up at my sod house there with a 12-volt you know, battery hooked up to a solar panel. And, um, and um, I just love her, her words and, and, and uh, music and voice, especially her voice. Um, and so she, <laughs> probably 30 people showed up in Missoula at this, uh, at this um, reading of mine. And afterwards, this uh, lady came out and said her name was Martha. And, I said, "Yeah, my name's Seth," and we both had masks on. And um, and I, I can't recognize faces. I have face recognition blindness and can't even recognize uh, people I've known my whole life. And uh, and I, I certainly had no idea what she looked like. But anyway, so she said her last name, and I was just beside myself with uh, uh, honor. I don't know if honor is the right word, but just just so amazed that that Martha Scanlon came to my dinky little reading <laughs> um, but anyway so yeah the next evening I went out and uh, uh, we hung out uh, around a uh, campfire at, at her place there and um, mm-hmm. and uh, talked and um, yeah it was really interesting in uh, many ways one is just the whole idea of um, this struggle as a uh, self-employed people trying to uh, navigate the changes in in um, uh, you know how you sell music or how you sell books or who 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 pays for them who reads them and then social media and it was um, and and then she complimented me greatly on um, just my ability to make uh, climate change real in my uh, talks about it and and so yeah it was uh, interesting I guess the only sad thing that remains with me is that uh, I didn't realize she had uh, quite the same struggles I do to to deal with uh you know making a living with this uh you know self-employed attempts and um you can get it in your mind which I I know people have it in their mind that you know I make uh, millions of dollars on these books and um and uh and just all this uh, hypothetical glamour that's all not real you know last week that um Filson uh menswear came out with some pictures of me modeling their clothing well i was uh guiding them out in the snow sh- and storms here last march and and they took pictures but you know they're certainly not paying me a penny for that and so you can end up with one more uh you know image of uh hypothetical glamour that's uh pretty unglamorous from this end <laughs> um and so to me that was just microscopically sad in a way that I I guess I, with Martha's abilities and her voice, I just hadn't thought that she was sort of uh, thrashing around in the same willow as I am. Hmm. You know, it's an interesting
0: concept, success, because it's one of those things that, you know, be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. And what does it look like when you do get it, or if you get it? And you know, just thinking about it hypothetically, if you got it in, say, the same way that Stephen King has it, and maybe you can't hunt caribou anymore because you're stuck doing book tours for the rest of your life.
1: it's That's <laughs> so interesting that um, uh, I always go back to my dad being very suspicious of uh, things that cost money. Well, he was suspicious because he didn't want to have a job. And he was always, uh, uh, he's never had a steady job in my life and is just religiously and morally opposed to the concept. And I I joke about that in the book uh, where, you know, he warned us about thin ice and the dangers of of water in the winter and freezing and moose and bears. But, you know, right up there on that list was... uh, was st- the dangers of having a job <laughs> um, and that goes back to um, you know uh, uh, you spend money you got to go out there and make it and um, um, but the but success I, I I'm always glad that I'm carefully suspicious of of so-called success because I think it can just lead you straight away from uh, happiness or what you like to do or, or what's imp- or what's actually important and um, and so yeah, back to the you know struggling with being self-employed and and making a living at it is um, um, yeah I'm uh, I'm very aware of that that um, whatever John Grisham gets for his uh, you know a million copies of this or that uh, I'm not at all sure I have any interest in most of it <laughs> um, and this summer, uh, in this last year or so, uh, well, all these years, I guess, but living in, in little shacks and, and cold and, and, you know, arduous situations, um, I, I just feel like, wow, there's just so much to learn here. And, and one of the things I've thought about um, this last summer and, and fall and winter is um, I kind of stopped washing out ziplock bags um (laughs) here i don't i don't have running water and i i I didn't have a way of uh uh, doing anything very easily and and Mm -hmm. i I stopped uh my beer cans are going in the trash and um, little things that you know society is saying hey we want us all to uh, recycle or or save resources and and it's it's just hard when your life is hard and so Mm-hmm. If you're living in a in a you know ten thousand square foot mansion um, heating half of the you know block with your giant structure and you're you have plenty of time to recycle your beer cans, yeah, well, good for <laughs> you. but um you know some of the the harder uh, situations I've experienced, I think well, it goes back to our society not understanding the importance of hardship and and how you learn from hardship and and then also how it affects your life and um and so i'm i'm getting circuitous in this uh in this uh paragraph here but um yeah i, I just think that the uh, success is a is a pretty blurry uh statement and then um and then you know desire is uh, uh it's almost better to not want than to you know, get caught up in the wrong want. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to let you know that occasionally I'll
0: ask guests on the podcast who they think I should interview. And a number of times people have suggested that I interview you. What I think is great in addition to that is that every time it's been out of reverence for your writing. So Don Reardon suggested I reach out to you um, and when he, he said to reach out to you, he was like, um, you know, Cody, you, you like good writers. You need to talk to Seth canner.
1: <laughs> Don's so crazy. Don has done. I don't know why he doesn't become a, uh, just become my publicist. He's done so much for me and he never stops. And I don't even understand how he has time to write. He's so busy helping me. And that's just with the writing, you know, then I call him three or four times a week to ask him how to turn my computer on or, or all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, I, uh, I don't even know where to start repaying Don for everything he does for me on an hourly basis.
0: Roman Dial
1: also suggested it,
0: suggested that I reach out to you.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've been wanting to know what uh, Roman dealt with with his book in, in many ways, but the, um, he's sort of caught in my brain as a person who bumped directly up against COVID. He sent me his book, and I, I blurbed it for him, which I, I don't do too often. I have to uh, feel something for writing. I, I, I feel bad, but a lot of people expect me to blurb their book, and it might be a, a, a genre that, is not something I read, or it doesn't touch me. And I, I did his book, and then, and then along came COVID, and I never did find out um, how all that worked. I was envious because he had a, it looked like a big, big house, big publisher, and, and anyway, I never got back to him. But, yeah. So the, um, I think this drags me over into the subject of what writing has done for me, and before Ordinary Wolves came out, I. You know, in most ways, I was nobody. I was no, wasn't really white or native, or never played basketball or gone to the same public school somebody went to, or wasn't part of a community. Had never been, and and so the writing community um, has been, you know, my first and and you know, in some ways, only community of. Uh, way writers help each other and was was amazing to me i should say even before my books came out it's just amazing to me the way writers helped each other and not to pick too much on photographers but (laughs) i felt like the photographers were were more competitive and so you know if your picture of a caribou having sex with a bear was used then maybe (laughs) so-and-so's would wouldn't be and um and um but writing it wasn't that way it was more like um uh writing the space for all of us in the sense that we're, we're so different it's not like a photograph but yeah so i've been um lucky and amazed and then the other thing is is not even just the community of the writers but the most of the people i've met uh in the last you know second half of my life is be, because of uh, traveling for writing um actual writing or or people getting a hold of me and and so i think that's the part uh thank you very much for reminding me actually um that's the part i need to uh focus on uh, as far as back pressure to make me write more and and uh and feeling success in my tiny little heart um (laughs) unappreciative heart (laughs) um yeah it's easy to i i find it easy to get sort of uh, negative about writing, and yeah, why am I wasting my time? And um, and I think this fall was probably the one of the pinnacles of that. When I left um, uh, my place upriver, um, like a uh, four days before the flood of caribou finally came, so I'd spent all that time with zero caribou, searching the the land for for animals, and then left. To go to the States to go talk about caribou and then miss them, and then got to the States where my books were lost on a barge um, because of basically what I'm writing about is, you know, this complicated world Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, or avoiding the complicated world. Um, So it just (laughs) felt like I was caught in these, um, choppy waters of uh confusion and you know modernity bumping up against my life and me trying to write about the the old life and then mm-hmm. being off on book tour for it's it just a big mess and um and I was like why the heck am I doing this I should um I should stop
0: in my experience a true alaskan writer is someone who's writing genuinely represents alaska it's in how they describe the land and the ocean, and in the words they choose. When you sit down to write, is that something you actively consider, or is it something that just comes naturally to you?
1: Oh no, I uh, actively consider it. Um, okay, I, um, I, I, I very stress put lots of stress on myself for it. So, um I need to describe the the pastel orange dawn and the dark darkness and the wind and um, yeah, I I put a lot of stress on myself and, and uh <laughs> goes back to being a kid where um, uh, people now are always asking me, you know, which Alaskan writer influenced you and in all this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we just, the last thing me and my brother wanted to read about was Alaska. <laughs> um, please don't make us read it. And then uh, the Tundra, whatever, just. We had plenty of nature and plenty of tundra. We did not want to read about that crap. Um, and then uh, the other side of that was just that it never felt real. The uh, people writing about Alaska, it seemed like a lot of exaggerations and um, and uh, noble this and glamorous that. And, mm-hmm. and um, I would say that was a, a huge percentage of uh, why I wrote um, at all was... To uh, wanting it to wanting somebody to write it the way it was, um, with the, the messiness and the and the irreverence and the and the beauty all mixed together, and um, mm-hmm. and I didn't like the leaving that out. Um, the other thing, uh, definitely back to uh, some of our previous uh, uh, conversations here um, in the last half an hour is. Um, I was cut off from people and, and uh, as far as connecting with people. So, my attempt to connect with people was, you know, me writing Ordinary Wolves. Uh, I didn't have any other way to say, you know, this is how I feel, this is how I see the world, other than to write that book. Um, and it's almost like by writing that book, I succeeded in uh, connecting with people, <laughs> and then it makes it less. I was only going to write one book. My publisher or somebody, my, one of those, maybe my agent said, okay, so you've broken trail for being a writer, now you need to quickly write another book. And I was like, <laughs> I was only going to write one. I never wanted to write more than one, and it was uh, very disappointing to hear that anybody wanted me to write another one. Um <laughs> Um, so, um, yeah, it's very important to me to, um, describe, uh, this country and land and animals and, and people, uh, as closely as I can to accurate and, and clear. And I like that. I don't have a word for it, but I like when your description is just so true that you can feel it and be there and, mm-hmm. and you, it's almost like you're not reading. You're just there.
0: Yeah, I feel like good writers are masters of observation. They're able to retell what they observe in a way that helps readers better understand themselves and the world they live in. If you were to insert yourself into that concept that your writing is helping people understand something, what do you think that something is?
1: Hmm, interesting. Um I I really uh hope I can go back to this young adult novel because um, something in there I'm trying to say and I don't quite know what it has to do with self-respect and that's been very blurry for me and um, uh, self-respect you know I say that and I think uh, e- egotism or or you're selfish or you're not supposed to think of yourself and um, all these questions and, and unsureness about that and so i guess um there's probably a correlation there in everything i'm trying to do which is uh you know your sense of place your relationship to what's around you and then this crazy uh uncertainty of your relationship with yourself and and um you know more and more that's my complaint about the iphone is i (laughs) I don't even notice myself, I'm too busy playing with my phone, <laughs> 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 um, but um, I think all that is, um, I spend uh, lots of time alone, lots of time up river at the, uh, uh, you know, what we've come to call Kapakavak, which means, um, you know, place where you spear salmon, but it's, it's, you know, it's a sandbar three or four hundred yards from where we, we build our sod igloo, and but um, I spend lots of time up there where there's there is just no uh, there are no people around. Not like being in my shack here alone, but you're just totally alone, and um, and so I have tons of time to for my mind to think about these things. And and um, you know I, w- I want to write about uh, suicide and alcoholism and 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 caribou and and uh, bullying and all these things, but I. Th- I think they kind of go back to that, that same subject of, you know, where we fit in with uh, our surroundings.
0: hmm You know, Seth, that does it for my questions. I wanted to let you know that I really appreciate your time. Um, this has been great. Roman Dial and Don Reardon were 100% correct in knowing that I would love to talk to you, that I would love to talk to you.
1: Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, no, this is very interesting, uh, your ability to make me talk about this stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, no, I mean, there's always more and, um, and all that, you know, talking about food is, you know, if you ever want to do a <laughs> podcast on food, that's the kind of my connection to, to the world. Um, and I think it's going to become our everybody's connection pretty quick here when things get a little harder um but no this is good um great talking to you and um and uh hope to meet you one of these days
0: you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcota Beats.